This is the Man Up Podcast, the doctor's guide to men's health. Each week on our podcast, we interview the top specialists of the field on various topics in men's health. You have questions that you are too afraid to ask? We have the answers. This week, our episode is titled, You're in Trouble, Addressing Your Prostate and Peeing Problems. I'm Dr. Kevin Chu, and I'm joined as always with my co-host, Dr. Justin Dubin. What's up, Justin? Nothing much. I'm doing good over here in Boca, living the, living Boca the dream. Boca Raton. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, South Florida guy now. For, for good. How does it feel to be back? Um, it's hot. It feels very, very hot, but it's it's it, good. It's good. I, but um, I gotta say, man, I you know, you, you know, we've been you know, you've been here in Miami before. I feel like this summer's this summer's gonna be a hot one. It's a scorching one. Well, I mean, it's all we're recording this in the middle of summer, so I, I yeah. we'll see. I mean, you're not wrong so far. So it's it's been uh, it's been a hot one. Um, I've only been here for a few days as we record this. But um, uh, it's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to being back and taking care of some patients in South Florida. But um, awesome, and when man. we're talking about taking care of patients, uh, today we are talking about urinary problems, which is pretty much one of the most common, if not the most common thing that we see guys for. Right, Kev? Yeah. You know, as guys get older, inevitably, a lot of patients, a lot of guys are going to have issues with their prostate. All right. These prostates can lead to certain different scenarios that they, you know, guys can have. These can be frequent urination. This can be, you know, unable to urinate. There's just a multitude of problems, right, Justin? Yeah. So it's so there's so many ways in which the prostate, which grows as you get older, can potentially bother you. It can, you know, and, and this obstruction doesn't mean doesn't mean prostate cancer. It doesn't mean a lot of these things. But right. you can wake up at night. You can, you know, feel like you're not emptying your bladder. Um, you can have hesitancy to get going, have a weak stream. And a, there's a lot of, I mean, the bad thing is a lot of guys have this. But the good thing is there's a lot of different ways that we can treat this. And and so we were fortunate enough to bring on Dr. Stephen Kaplan, who I've known for a long time, uh, who is now the professor of urology at Mount Sinai in New York. And he is really one of the top guys in the field when it comes to urinary problems and, and BPH, benign prostatic hyperplasia. I thought we had a great, great interview with him. I definitely learned a lot. I think a lot of our listeners are going to learn a lot. And I think the major thing, though, is that we can't help people unless they come in and they talk to us. Right, Kev? Absolutely. You know, it, you know, it was an, it was an excellent conversation that we had with him. I think a lot of our listeners are going to learn a lot. I'm reminded of a, of a patient, you know, that, you know, I, I think it was a couple years ago. Um, he had actually held off. He hadn't like come to a urologist and his urinary issues, his frequency, uh, his urgency were affecting him so much, but he just held off and it affected him so much. He was stressed out from it. It was causing him to be depressed. Um, and he thought like this was how he had to live life, like this was how life was. But he eventually came and saw us and, you know, we were able to tell him like, look, these are the medical options. These are the behavioral options. These are the surgical options. And I was so happy to see him four months later after we had intervened that, you know, his, his improvement in quality of life was so much. And so, you know, as Justin was saying, I think it's really important for you to understand the information as well as to go see a, a urologist. You know, this is something that can be taken care of. 
Absolutely. And I think that, that was a great picture of this, the typical guy we see. And at the end of the day, we have so many ways in which we can help you and make that, that you're comfortable with to make sure that we're on the same page. You just got to come see us. So, you know, I think without further ado, let's show, let's start the, the episode with Dr. Kaplan. All right. So we are joined today, very lucky to be joined by, oh, yeah. with Dr. Stephen Kaplan. Uh, Dr. Kaplan is going to introduce himself in a second, but I was telling him before this, for everyone that knows, so they know that I, he's the reason why I'm in urology, actually. So a long time ago, he helped me get a job as a clinical research coordinator at Cornell, where where he used to work. And uh, that got my interest into urology. And, and, you know, that was in 2010 to 2012. So 10 plus years later. Here we are. So welcome, Dr. Kaplan. Thanks for coming. And feel free to just give us an introduction. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Well, everybody knows me. He's the guy who brought Justin Dubin into Rollins. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's kind of what I'm most known for. Most of uh, but yeah, you reminded me of the story. So God, it just uh, time really flies, and I'm glad that uh, you've done so well. Uh, so I'm a urologist, and uh, right now I'm at Mount Sinai. I run the men's health program, and I'm also the chair of uh, research for the American Urologic Association. And that's, those are my side jobs. Those are my hobbies. I'm also in the business and entrepreneur world. So it's a busy time. It's a fun time. And it's kind of fun dealing and uh, with the next generation, folks like uh, you and Kevin. And I think it's always a lot of fun to connect in different ways and uh, look forward to our conversation. That's awesome. Well, look, we're lucky to have you on. The listeners are going to be lucky to hear all the expertise that you're going to share. So let's just jump straight into it. So first off, Let's talk about the prostate. Also, it's not prostrate as Justin loves to say it, you know, well, but it's the prostate. It's, that's what people say, right? Like the old right. people, New York, New Jersey, the prostrate. Jersey, Jersey definitely. Yeah. Oh, I got a prostrate issue. Anyway, I'm <laughs> sorry. So, okay, the prostate. So, so what does it do? Why do men have it? Well, a lot of their partners wonder in the middle of the night why they, why they need it. Um, and, and I think a lot of times because they're first examined, they're prostrate, and that's when they get their prostate examined. Uh, uh, but the, the, pro, the, the prostate's a gland. It's kind of ironic that the time that we need it the least is the time that it causes us the most problems. So the prostate is a gland that produces some of the seminal fluid uh, that comes out during uh, an ejaculate. And it's just weird that uh it causes us in, in, at least in theory you want to have it when you're in your reproductive years and this can be whatever you define it at uh but it causes more problems as we get older prostate cancer enlargement as the case may be but it's it's really a sexual function accessory gland in terms of its usage and you kind of just uh you know, brought up the two things that we think about when we think about the prostate, really prostate cancer and that enlarged prostate. And, and you know, we're not going to be talking about the cancer aspect. You are a specialist with when it comes to, you know, prostate problems. So let's talk about BPH or which is benign prosthetic hyperplasia. What is that? Um, and, and how does that really impact urinary issues? So the prostate, as we get older, grows. And frankly, it starts growing from the time of almost puberty. 
So over the course of time, as we get older, there is an enlargement relative to what it started at. But people get confused about prostate enlargement because the three of us, our prostates could be enlarging at different times. So it's not just how old we are, it's the rate of growth of the prostate. So you used an important term, benign, and it is benign. It's almost the corollary would be like fibroids in, in women. And uh, it's prostatic and because it's part of the prostate and hyperplasia or growth. Uh, so all of that. And I, and I think, and I'm sure as we'll talk about, the confusion of what the layperson, and frankly, a lot of clinicians call an enlarged prostate gets folks confused because there are varying degrees of enlargement and varying degrees of problems with it. Patients can have an enlarged prostate. They don't even know it. They don't have any problems. And patients can have a minimally enlarged prostate and they're miserable because there's a lot of factors that go into that equation. Yeah. And I think that's an important point too. And and we can kind of, I think I want to start off with the idea of, you know, we know that they get older, they get bigger as we get older, but we don't know why really, do we? Because that's a question it's, we get all the time. Of, right. There's a lot of theories about it and it's clear there's a genetic part of it um, and what side of the equation, whether it's maternal or paternal, don't really know completely. It has to do with hormones to some degree. So the male hormone, testosterone, and its metabolites or parts of it as as uh, uh, one of the uh, hormone elements of it can make it grow. We do know that early castration uh, prevents prostate growth. So clearly there's a hormone growth element mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and probably some dietary factors that we're not aware of as well. Because folks say, well, you know, a 60-year-old guy comes in and he's got already enlarged prostate, he's got urinating symptoms, what's going to change my diet? And so you can change your diet so you don't have urinating issues, but you're not going to change your diet in terms of the prostate growth. So um, I've always told patients that in terms of what they should eat or what they shouldn't eat, I said, whatever's good for your body is probably good for your prostate. Or probably bad for your body is probably bad for your prostate. And I I think that's the way we have to look at a lot of things. There's general good health, and I think that's for prostate health as well. So so one of the things that you mentioned, you know, some patients will have – enlarged prostate and they, they may never know. But a lot of the things that drives them and brings them into our clinics is that they're having urinary issues. So what are some of these symptoms? What are these urinary issues that they're having associated with an enlarged prostate? So there's a, a large constellation of different types and different degrees of bother of them as well. So the most common symptom, at least that we see, and I'm sure you see as well, is they're going a lot to the bathroom. Um, and a lot can be different to different folks because it depends how much they drink and other factors. They notice their stream is decreased, and uh, a couple of folks have told me they can't write their name in the snow. So <laughs> I always ask them, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. I said, is it your handwriting or somebody else's? <laughs> uh, <laughs> they look at me, and I said, eh, I'll explain it to you in a different time. Uh, get <laughs> Uh, get, getting up at night to, to urinate, which can have a lot of factors besides the large prostate. Also, a thing that really bothers people is that urge. They have to really get to the bathroom quickly. And sometimes the urge is greater than the surge. So their bladder is having a little bit of a spasm and they got to run. And then when they get there, not a lot of urine is coming out. So there's a lot of factors because people forget it's your prostate doesn't urinate, it's your bladder. And right. it's the interaction between bladder function and prostate uh, issues that really determine the uh, the uh, the degree of of bother, and what we've learned, and, and again, I'm sure you you've seen this as well. You can take about you can talk about the same exact symptom, and in some 
men, it says, eh, it doesn't bother me. And in some men, it really bothers a lot. So we have to deal not just with the symptoms, but also how much it bothers that individual person. That's that's such a good point. And I think when we're talking about symptoms, I think the first one of the first questions that I, I often hear from a patient, and I'm sure you guys hear too, is, you know, a guy comes in and he's like, you know, I'm having this frequency or I'm having trouble getting started. I kind of don't feel like I'm emptying. And we talked about already that sometimes it's not necessarily the size of your prostate. It could be a small prostate just blocked in the wrong areas, growth in the wrong areas. But the, the first question we often get is, does this mean I have cancer? Now, I think that's an important point because a lot of guys are worried, okay, my prostate maybe seems like it's getting bigger. Does that, and you, and I mean, understandably, you think about growth and you think cancer, but it's important here to press that it, it's not associated with cancer, correct? Right. Not, I mean, there are patients who can have both, Correct. but you don't have one, be- you don't have one because of the other. So, and you're hundred percent right. And, and one thing just as a general idea is the things that drive men into seeing us or their primary care physician or whatever are three things. Uh, the three of the top 10 things that men in general go to see a clinician for prostate cancer. They want to know yes, no, maybe. Uh, urinating problems and sexual problems. So, and a lot of it is related to the prostate. Right. So you're right. And I think it's important for people to realize that one doesn't cause the other, one doesn't lead to the other, but they can coexist together. Gotcha. So now you mentioned that, you know, it, you, it, it's important to delineate between symptoms and bother. So for a patient who's, you know, for some of our listeners who are thinking like, hey, you know, I, I may be having some frequency or maybe some urgency, when should they come and see a urologist? Well, there's a lot of factors. So for some people, it's just they're bothered by it. Uh, or sometimes their partner says, hey, you know, there's a problem here. And we see that often that the partner may be driving uh, that, that office visit. There may be other things associated with it that come in. So, for example, sometimes a man will come in and can't urinate at all, urinary retention. And that's an, that's an easy one. Uh, sometimes they'll have blood in the urine. Again, that's abnormal and they'll come see us. But it's usually when the symptoms get bothersome to the, to the person. And as I said before, bothersome is different and can be fine differently in different people. So we have to recognize that uh, there's a sensitivity sometimes with different people in terms of how much they're bothered. That's okay. But the most common reason why people are treated, the most common people why people want other types of therapies, if they fail med- medications or some type of therapy, is the degree of bothersome. That that drives the engine. The other stuff is maybe 10% of the time that there other things happen that they don't almost have a choice. Right. But it's usually how much it bothers and how much their quality of life changes. And it can. It can certainly change your quality of life. I think that's important to note. So for our listeners, you know, it's important that you come in and you talk with us because this is a, you know, there's, there's a few measurements, you know, how much urine you are retaining in your bladder, the flow of your, your urine. These are measurements, but these are not always as important as how you're feeling. So, you know, it's important that you're honest and you're talking with us. And, and I, this kind of goes to my next point where we want guys to come in before it's too late because one of the most common things we see in the ER is guys who don't come in and they don't talk to us and they're in urinary retention, whether they had too many beers mm. one night, they had, yep. you know, they were doing something, they had anesthesia or they had some yep. small little thing and they come in and they get into retention. 
And I think that um, that's one of the few problems that you can see if you kind of ignore these things. But that can lead to a couple other things. What are some potential long-term issues, um, Dr. Kaplan, if you do kind of ignore the symptoms and, and you know, and you're somewhat tolerating them, even though you shouldn't be? What are some of the problems you can face down the line? Right. Well, you've mentioned a couple of them. Retention, where one day after procedure, something happens, or they take a medication, or they just, the natural history of this is they can't urinate. And that's that's an obvious one. And that can cause a lot of issues such as pain and discomfort. And it's really a very uncomfortable experience for the patient. Fever, a urinate tract infection, which sometimes can be local to the bladder. Sometimes it spreads, something called urosepsis. Um, but the thing that people have to remember also, it's not static. So People get this confusion that as they get older, if they're pro- let's say they're in their mid-60s or 70s, your prostate's not getting any bigger. It doesn't mean that your bladder is not getting any worse. They, they think, well, my prostate's not enlarging. No, but because things are not static. The, the bladder still has to push urine out through some type of obstruction or narrowing of the channel. So it's cumulative. And my concern that I express with patients is that over time, your bladder muscle will begin to not be able to get the urine out. And I make it very simple that sometimes it's a clog in the sink and sometimes it's a problem with the faucet. And you want to get them while they have a clog in the sink because that's easy for us to manage. But when it's a problem with the faucet, then we get into more problems because we get to a point where the bladder is so weak that no matter what we do, they're not going to get better. So there's a balance. and, And clearly over the last 30 years as we've used medications as the primary therapy, the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we delaying the inevitable? Are we then going to see larger prostates because we've been waiting? And more importantly, are we seeing patients later in the life cycle of their bladder so that therapy for their prostate may not be as as effective? And all those questions, frankly, we don't have great answers for. We think that this is true. And it may be different let's say the three of us, you know, we may have different linear uh, changes in our bladder. Right. And I can't tell the difference in individual patients. We think that maybe changes in how much they retain over time may do that. But there is no one marker that says, "Uh uh-oh, that's a patient we got to intervene in. We think that there are, but it's not something that's reproducible and always correct. And uh, Dr. Kaplan, one of the other things is, you know, it, as this bladder, the muscle is starting to lose its, you know, ability to contract, that can also have some even more upstream effects on the kidneys. Is that correct? Correct. And uh, fortunately, that's not, it's not something we see a lot of, but it can be and it can be devastating. So one of the, the probably the seminal study that was ever done with medications for BPH or an enlarged prostate, as you said, uh, is uh, the EMTOP study, which was the medical therapy of prostate symptoms, which was funded by your tax dollars and my tax dollars. And I was lucky to be one of the investigators. Mm -hmm. And one of the metrics that we looked at a progression of disease was kidney failure and whether there's a blood test we do called creatinine and whether it changed. And in that group, it didn't happen a lot. Uh, In fact, we changed what we did in terms of whether or not we even need to measure kidney function at the outset when we see a patient. That does not mean that it doesn't happen. It can happen. And there are patients who come in in kidney failure. They usually come to the emergency room for whatever reason. They get a blood test and their creatinine is off the wall. And then people notice that they got urine stuck in their system. So that is kind of a, fortunately, not a very common thing, but it's it's a very dangerous thing. 
and has to be managed because kidney failure, acute kidney failure ain't a joke. It's that's it. That is definitely not a joke. It's one of those things that you rarely see, but you don't, you know, you really don't want to see it. So, um, right. now we've been talking about all these urinary problems. Um, and we, we've kind of talked about how, how to, uh, talk about it and why, what, what to recognize as a patient. Now, one of the first questions often patients want to know is how can I fix this without a medication? So, you know, what are some lifestyle approaches to improving your urinary symptoms without, before getting to a, some kind of medication or procedure? Right. That's a great question because a diet and what you're consuming has an effect. So people don't connect caffeine to urinating problems because caffeine can irritate the bladder. It doesn't, it doesn't irritate the prostate. It irritates the bladder and that can cause the need to, uh, to urinate more urgency, frequency, and sometimes not getting to the bathroom in time. And there are certain things that have more caffeine than others. Obviously, you go to Starbucks and have a mocha, a mocha frappa, whatever the heck you're going to have. <laughs> that, Disgusting. 1,200 calories, yeah, uh, yeah, calories in whipped cream because, you know. The diabetes there will get you too. But <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, so that can certainly cause it. Alcohol is another uh, irritant to the bladder. Um, you've mentioned that other concomitant issues like diabetes is notorious for affecting these things. How much water do you drink? So if somebody's going to be drinking 10 bottles of water, it's going to urinate more. If they have a very kind of vegetarian type of diet, that's, there's a lot of water in there. So that can affect it as well. But you just have to let people know that what you put in somehow has to come out. And if it's going to be fluid, it's usually going to be in some type of urinating thing. Um, also, how much they sleep, when they sleep, stress. Uh, there's so many factors. Oh, you mentioned, you alluded to obesity. And obesity is a very, yes. very important uh, predeterminant for having uh, bladder type of symptoms of frequency and urgency. And given the fact that this country ain't getting skinnier, in fact, it's getting heavier, and certain right. populations, it's you talk about an, uh, an epidemic, that is a real epidemic, uh, particularly in certain populations like the African-American population, where about 75 to 80% of African-Americans are either obese or overweight. Wow. That's a big problem. That's a big uh, problem. La, uh, right. Latino, uh, Latino patients and Caucasian patients, too. This is not, you know, there's different uh, percentages, but the, the we can almost say that uh, across the United States, I would say it's probably uh, two-thirds of Americans are probably obese or overweight. And that can be a predeterminant for urinating problems and also sexual problems. So, you know, there, there's a consequence of what we put into our mouths and everything has an effect. And we have to kind of remember that. And it's hard to just automatically change things. Our job and our role and the opportunity is to let people know, hey, these are the things can affect it. They have to then make the decision if they can change it. And sometimes they can't, not because they don't want to. It's economic issues, and it's right. sometimes cheaper to buy a Big Mac than to get a good meal. That's reality in the United States. It's very States, true. It's you know, very world. true. So those are discussions, but yet you help people understand this a little bit. It's up to them to change it. Sometimes they want to change it and can't, but at least understanding that I think is, is a big value add for patients. Yeah, I think there's, there's things that you can think about, and I've thought about when we're counseling patients, and I'm sure we've all said, talked about these things. When you're talking about things where patients, we call it nocturia when they're waking up too many times a night, you know, reducing whatever fluid it may be 
before bedtime, two to three hours before two bedtime, hours, hours, right. two hours before, right, yeah. Kev? You know, yeah. you're limiting that. You're at least trying to do some kind of control. Maybe instead of having soda, you go have a seltzer water, which has no caffeine. You know, these are potential options that, you know, maybe you can find a middle ground with that can hopefully impact to some degree. I mean, th these are things that I've thought about, and I'm sure we've all talked about with our patients. Well, one other thing, and you alluded to that as well, is uh, about sleep patterns and nocturia, because getting OSA, up at night, yeah. which is with nocturia, right, sleep apnea. And one yeah. of the first questions I ask, particularly as patients get older, is do they snore? And usually, and sometimes they'll say, no, I don't. And their partner says, oh, yeah, he does. <laughs> and, and I mean, sleep apnea is a major cause for urinating problems. And yes. who are more likely to get sleep apnea? Obese patients. So everything is tied into each other. And right. again, it doesn't mean that you can change it overnight, but at least it lets people recognize that there are other non-medical, non-surgical uh, lifestyle issues. And then, of course, stress. And stress is an underrated but very important reason why patients don't sleep well at night and they get up. Uh, urinating problems, because if you're kind of tense, uh, you know, we see from muscle dysfunction, the urinating problems. You know, some people get headaches or some people get back pain. They see other subspecialties. We see the folks, women and men, with pelvic muscle dysfunction or some type of urinating problems. And they've been scheduled to have a, uh, a surgery for their prostate. That's not the problem. So it comes back to the original premise. We forgot sometimes that the most important thing we can do is actually talk to a person. And, you know, in an era where we're seeing 90 gazillion patients a day, or yeah. at least you do, uh, and not, <laughs> not me anymore, that's because uh, uh, I can't think that fast. Um, it's you got to listen to what the primary problem is and what the primary concern of the patient is very different. And that will hopefully push us and the patient into the right direction in terms of diagnosis. The biggest challenge I see and in, in my practice, the average amount of uh, doctors that a patient has seen is about three and a half. So they've seen already a lot of different people. And a lot of times they're misdiagnosed. And that's why they're they're treated in the wrong way, and that's why they're unsatisfied with some of their therapies. So listening is just very, very important. And I think the history is probably the most important thing we can do to figure out what the major problem is and then put them on the right path for diagnosis and treatment. I mean, that's that's great. And it's such an important point for our listeners, again, just tying everything together that there are so many contributing factors, such as exactly what you're drinking, your sleep, uh, you know, if you have diabetes, your weight that could all be contributing to your, you know, voiding issues. And these are things that you want to share with your urologist when you sit down with them. Um, right. But, you know, sometimes right. these lifestyle changes, you know, don't work. And you got the patient comes in, it's like, I got to go on the Flomax. I got I to gotta take that medication my buddy's <laughs> taking. Yeah. So, you know, Dr. Kaplan, what are these medications that can potentially help with uh, voiding issues? So there's a, a, lot, a lot of them. So I've always find it fascinating that patients will say, uh, you know, I don't want to take, a, I, I take a vitamin and as opposed to, I don't take a, a medication. And I asked them, I said, well, that's interesting, but what's about a vitamin that you're putting into your system as opposed to a medication that you're putting into your system? You're still putting into your system. Do you know what's <laughs> in it? And, you know, when you break it down, it's kind of like, duh. Uh, so <laughs> like it, and it's, uh, that's fine. But it's also the natural history of urinating symptoms. 
evolves over time. So, for example, if today is 0.0 and we take 100 men with urinating symptoms, and if we see them next year, a third will have gotten worse, a third will have gotten better, and a third would have had no change. So they could, we could drink in Diet Coke or something, and they may get better and say, hey, Diet Coke, that's a treatment. Uh, right, right. So right, that, right. that's just the natural history, natural history of things. But getting back to your original question, Kevin, there's different classes of medication. And the classic one, you mentioned a drug called Flomax, which is what's called an alpha blocker, which relaxes the muscles of the prostate and, and, and bottom of the bladder, which in theory makes the, the channel a little bit more open. That's the, what by, by and large the most common medications used. Um, and there's a lot of them that are out there. There's different. You mentioned Flomax, which is a drug called Tamsulosin. The generic is really the most common things. Uh, there are drugs that shrink the prostate. Um, and there's, uh, they were marketed as Proscar or Avidart, they're finasteride or dutasteride, and they can shrink the prostate, given in the right patients, about 20%. Uh, there are medications that actually work on the, the bladder, uh, for urgency and frequency. They're called overactive bladder medications. And the two classes, something called anti-muscarinics, uh, which work a certain way, and beta-3 agonists, which I think are probably a little bit more effective in men. And then there's a drug that's used for erections called Tadalafil or Cialis uh, when it was branded that is approved for the use in BPH. And, and for those who read my work, I'm, I'm not a big fan of it, not because I don't think it works. I don't think it works in the prostate. I think it actually right. works in the bladder because I think it's urgency and frequency that get better. Yeah. Uh, but that all being said, those are the most common medications that are used. Some of them are still being looked at. And then they're combinations. So you can take more than one, sometimes two. And I'm fascinated that people would take two or three medications for a quality of life disorder for years. I'm thinking to myself, that's crazy. You know, why would you take much less one medication for a quality of life for many years and take two and three because of side effects of these things. And we always talk about these drug-drug interactions, how one drug interacts with another. But we don't have any data about drug-drug-drug-drug. <laughs> right, right. so, it's yeah, really true. It's dangerous. really true. <laughs> and, oh, and we don't know. And as people get older, men, over their, and men and women over their 70s are usually taking anywhere from six to eight pills a day. So what's that interaction? And we don't think about it. We haven't studied it. And I think that's a big problem, too, this polypharmacy. And finally, another issue is what are the effects long-term medications? And there's been data on, on two classes of these medications, alpha blockers, but much stronger in the 5 alpha productase inhibitors about long-term use of these medications causing dementia, depression. Mm -hmm. I, th I think it's not – we don't know yet. But right. if you're taking stuff for many, many years, it's got to have some effect. And I don't know. I don't want to be sticking – drugs into my system for 20 years or whatever or for how long I get it. so we got to think about this and we willy-nilly prescribe these things and i think patients have to be part of that decision making process and, and i get both ends of it having been involved in virtually all the clinical trials on medications and i was a big proponent of medications right. and i'm not anti-medications but i am pro educating the patient i think they have to understand this is okay but think about it and let's make a decision together what to do. I think this is it's an excellent point. And, and we're going to get to the surgical aspect in a second. But before we get there, we talked a lot about some medications. You mentioned some vitamins, but then there's other things like supplements that people see. We see a, one of the more common ones is saw palmetto and something like the be, super beta prostate that we see. It's always on mm -hmm. like Amazon. Can you oh, just yeah. tell us right. a little bit about those two things? Do they work? Is there value in taking these at all? 
So when patients ask me this, I, I answer it in two ways. It depends what degree of sarcasm I'm uh, in that, that, that day. <laughs> uh, so I'll either tell them, one, the patients who benefit the most from these supplements are the ones who don't need anything. Right. Um, and again, if you have mild symptoms, you can take Diet Coke. You know, you can take peanuts and probably be okay. Uh, and then in terms of the value, I think the people who get the most value of these supplements are the people who sell these supplements. And I think <laughs> that's, they do that's pretty very well. true. <laughs> so that's kind of my feeling about all that. I don't mind people take it, but this notion that it's pain-free and, it's, you know, there's no get-out-of-jail-free card with this because it's not made by a pharmaceutical company is nonsense. It's made somewhere with something. And, and it's not regulated. System. And it's not regulated. And at least the pharmacies, regulated. the pharmacies are regulated, at least. I mean, this is, they could be putting theory, whatever, yeah. in theory, yes, correct. But I mean, they could be putting whatever they want. Who knows? They could be putting Flomax in the Saw Palmetto. They could be putting Flomax in the Super Beta Prostate. Could be putting testosterone. Who knows? I get, who knows? Well, it's even worse. You know, the, the most counterfeited drugs in the world are the drugs for erections, Viagra, Cialis. Right. And, and also then the second most of the statins and there was sometimes rat poison. Those people, yeah. you crazy. Know, people when it's made in, it's crazy stuff and you got to be careful. Um, and then there's the generic story, which is a whole different podcast. <laughs> I mean, people say, well, I'm taking a generic. It's the same. I said, no, it's not, not the same. You have the active ingredient in there, but you know, the, the hatch waxman rule of 1984 said you got to be anywhere from 80 to 120%. So sometimes you may be getting 80 and sometimes maybe getting 120%. You're not getting the exact, you're, it's, it's close, uh, but it's not exactly the same because how it's wrapped around can determine what's going on. So there's so much uh, stuff that people think is true. And Alan Wien is, was one of my mentors. Uh, he had a great line about this. He used to call it Euro mythology. And there is a lot of mythology in all aspects of urology. And I'm kind of fascinated that people accept things as true and you say, nah, that's not true. And then you study and go, that's, that's bull stuff. And uh, it's amazing. These hard truths become soft fallacies. Good word. Good, good pun there. <laughs> unintentionally <but laughs> no it wasn't yeah. it, it was intentional it was okay intentional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was good. <laughs> um all right well you know well first of all i'm really intrigued with this generic and you know i would we gotta have you come on we gotta that. come on and talk about that i'm, I'm intrigued separate right? time intrigued. yeah um but all right let's so let's tie it back so let, let's kind of wrap it up so you know surgery for bph for avoiding dysfunction there's a lot. And I think we're definitely going to bring you back on uh, and to talk a little bit more about that in detail. But, you know, can you just kind of just go over a brief overview of the procedures that men can consider for BPH? Sure. And I think the easiest way to understand it is there's stuff that can be done in the office, which we term minimally invasive, and then things that have to be done in the, in the hospital. Um, which some of them are minimally invasive, but just because of the nature of equipment. So the three FDA-approved um, ones that are commonly used now, something called the Eurolift. People may have seen commercials of that, where basically we staple inside out. If you can imagine that the prostate's like a donut and the urine channel's like a hole in the donut, we staple the inside of the donut to the outside of the donut. And it's very quick and very easy. There's something called a Resume, uh, which is a water, it's kind of steam therapy, 
where you pop steam into different parts of the prostate and that causes some melting changes of the prostate. That's kind of cool too. It's a variation of an older procedure called the tuna or transurethral needle ablation. Not really done much in this country anymore. And then there's some, a newer device called the ITIND, uh, I-T-I-N-D, which basically puts a coil inside the prostate for about a week. And then it kind of creates grooves within the prostate that open it up. Uh, the nice parts here, they're pretty easy to do. Uh, they're pretty quick. And the results are somewhere between medications and surgery. And that's a very, very brief overview. There's a lot more coming uh, and a lot of them in clinical trials. And then there's surgery, which is designed to not just open the channel, but actually remove part of the donut uh, from the inside out. And that can be done in a varying various ways with various instruments. Some people, you can use lasers and a whole bunch of lasers. There is electrical energy, which is a more older traditional. Uh, there is a newer tr- uh, procedure called aquablation, which uses kind of robotic, three-dimensional. Uh, there are ways of actually going through the abdomen, through the bladder to open up the uh, channel. And there's something called prostate arterial embolization, which basically puts some coils in the arteries of the prostate. And again, this, these are each of these are half hour discussions at least. Yeah. But oh that's yeah, kind oh, of yeah. a general over. There's a general overview. There's a lot of options out there, and I think the key thing from my perspective is don't be a jack of all trades and the master of none. Get get adept at maybe one of the minimally invasive and one of the surgical. Make the right diagnosis. Let the patient understand what's going on, and I think in general you'll have pretty good results. Yeah. And I think the important thing here is like we've talked about everything for, for our patients, there are so many options that we can cater to your, your needs, what you're comfortable with, what you're not comfortable with. And there's a, there's a whole conversation for another day regarding that. But, but I think at the end of the day, when it comes to all of these urinary problems at any level, it comes down to this fact of what you're comfortable with, what bothers you, and how we can approach that from a, in a conversation that we can have together um, to accomplish what you want. Because we have the tools, we just need to figure out how we can use those tools to make you a happy and good flowing. (laughs) You got to have the good flow. Um, But yeah, so just as a final wrap up, any final comments to our, our listeners, to our patients on about BPH, urinary issues, uh, any final thoughts? Yeah. So one is uh, don't go on the internet and get confused and scared uh, because the internet is, it's a cesspool of toxicity and misinformation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two is there, most of the stuff is easy to manage. Uh, The best way to get control of the situation is to get the right information. So go see a physician, healthcare professional, whatever that is. And I think that's important. And in general, men are, are not as good as educating themselves as women are. They, they see physicians less. They enter the healthcare system about 25% of the time less. Knowledge is power. And that's how you can make good decisions. So I would encourage people, don't be afraid. Get the information. And it doesn't mean you're going to have to have an operation. Most of the time, you don't need anything. But that will, I think, help you get into the right course for uh, not just for your prostate, but in general health as well. Perfect. I think that was a great way of ending it. So um, just want to thank you again for coming on. Uh, This was awesome that we've, I've learned a lot. Kevin's learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot. I I definitely want to hear more about that generics. Oh yeah. Still thinking about it. (laughs) Yes. That's really cool. Um, And so I'm just going to wrap it up for all of our listeners. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Um, as always, 
please feel free to uh, listen to our podcast on other platforms, including YouTube. You can follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, the man up pod at the man up pod. You can follow our podcast on all podcasting platforms, including Spotify, uh, iTunes, um, download, subscribe, give us a review, five stars. Um, and we also have our website. Kev, what's our website? Our website is live at www.themanuppod.com. That's right. And you can also listen or connect with us there. Um, but for Kevin and Dr. Kaplan, thanks for listening. As always, have a good one. Until next time. Bye.